0: Welcome to the Education Innovators Podcast. I'm Eric Byron, and it's an honor to host this show where we get to hear from talented educators who are willing to share their stories of the incredible things they are doing in learning environments all over the world.
1: You need to think about, am I conveying knowledge? Am I empowering the player by increasing their perception of their own self-advocacy? Or am I attempting to to provide them with a means to re-examine their attitude? And always ask yourself that. And, you know, the, if you're trying to do that with a bunch of quizzes, as you said, you're probably not going to achieve your goal. And you're really not leveraging your tools.
0: That was the voice of my guest on this week's episode of Clayton Whittle. Clayton is fascinated with the ability of games to teach. But beyond that, Clayton is convinced that games can help change attitudes and bring people to action outside of the games. With a Ph.D. in learning design from Penn State, he's truly an authority on designing learning games, and we had a fun conversation about how games can be used to help with climate change activism. Welcome to the Education Innovators podcast. I'm Eric Byron. I'm joined today with Clayton Whittle. Clayton holds a PhD in learning design from Penn State University, demonstrating a deep understanding of the theoretical and practical aspects of learning. His research has a particular emphasis on serious games design and interactive learning for persuasive messaging. He's committed to environmental education, climate action, and outdoor learning. His passion is not just a personal interest, but a driving force in shaping educational strategies for a sustainable future. Clayton has 10 years in classroom teaching experience, supplemented with invaluable time as a learning design consultant. His interest in games and learning began with exploring games as ethical analysis devices in 2010. He continued his work at Dan Cook University, where he designed and developed Delray, a digital role-playing game that replaced the textbook for introductory language classes. All right. So that kind of sets it up. You are an expert, and I'm going to pick your brain. And <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let's start this. Get to know you a little bit. So, tell me, what games do you play just for fun?
1: Oh, just for fun. Uh, let's see. I think I'm a. I'm going to be a little, l- little high horse here. I think I'm a traditionalist when I like my games. I like games that that offer a real challenge and there is a lot of room to lose and just be done with the game. So I play a lot of survival crafter kind of games when I do play. Okay, right now I'm a little bit addicted to Valheim, which if you haven't played is a sort of Viking themed survival crafter. Hey, I have not
0: played that good, huh?
1: Yeah, very good. And and I, I think I like the game. This is going to sound so cheesy, but lead into the podcast topic pretty quickly is I like those kinds of games because they offer a very organic learning experience. There's no training. There's no now you hit this button, you start. You have nothing, and you have to sort of fail your way into success, which is how the mind works.
0: Yeah. All right. So no. So that's cool. That is a good segue into our topic. So we talk about learning games and and why. We uh, we think that education uh, happens here, right? That we can leverage games for this. So so today, and and wanting to get you on here uh, onto the podcast to talk about this is specifically because I want to talk about the difference between games that are kind of you know commercial off the shelf games, and mm-hmm. and they can be effective for learning as well, but games that are really designed for learning, and I think you have some experience there in designing games purposefully to teach something and you have a particular interest in kind of sustainability climate action and so uh, that actually you know piques my interest as well i actually have an idea for such a game and oh, really? i've been toying with it and yes uh, it's very rough at this point it's an idea it's just started to get on paper but we'll, well, we'll ideas
1: I- ideas are where great art starts right it's the. It all
0: has to start from hope some so. inspiration. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. All right. So really let me let me just kind of explain for our audience here a little bit about your background and and how I ended up finding you and inviting you on the show. So um, I introduced myself to you after watching your presentation for the games based learning virtual conference. Uh, it was actually from 2021 called Empowering Voices in gamified climate action. I didn't attend that conference, but I just recently ran into the uh, the recording and you know, I, I listened or watched the whole thing on YouTube and thought, oh, I, I had to talk to this guy. Uh, Clayton's uh, got a, a lot of things going on there that I'm very interested in. So I want to talk about learning science and, and how you can apply learning science in game design. Um, but I also want to avoid being too theoretical on this. So tell us a, about some games you've worked on and how you applied learning science to influence the design of the game.
1: Sure. You know, I think probably the way I'd approach that is narratively, right? Because I, th- I think learning is a journey. Learning is a story, right? Mm-hmm. And I say that because you said, well, let's not get too theoretical, but I think it's good to start with a little theory yep. here because yep. it'll guide the rest of it is that part of my Philosophy of learning, and that's founded in both cognitive science and sort of just the high theory of learning, is that every step we take in life is a little bit of an experience, right? Every single thing that happens to us is an experience. And every time we have an experience, we, to some extent, take that experience and hold it up against our sort of cognitive model of what the world looks like and how things work. And we reevaluate. And, you know, to the extent that someone is sort of emotionally in the state that they are capable of doing so we re-examine whether or not we were right about the world and adjust our model based on our experience does the model reflect reality if not let's adjust right and i say that to me reflects a narrative because in that way all of our experiences are like a story and that every time when i'm reading a story every page adjusts my theory or about how it's going to end. Like a, a great mystery book, every page yep. you should have a new hypothesis about who done it, right? Right. And I think learning and and my journey as well sort of reflects that in the same way that learning does that our experience reflects that that I started with a theory of how games could help society and how games could help learning. And that started very early in 2010 I was writing about ethical conundrums in games. Uh, And those were off-the-shelf games. I really wanted to know the limitations. And ethics, the adjustment of ethics is one of the hardest things to adjust. It's pretty deeply seated in who we are, right? And I wanted to, I was trying to understand the extent to which uh, ethics-based off-the-shelf games, like thinking about old Bioware RPGs, like Mass Effect and uh, Knights of the Old Republic, how much those might inspire people to adjust their ethical perspective Mm -hmm. and then i think i I moved from there into intentional design Uh, and part of that was any researcher has a thirst for knowledge and always wants to see what's next right i wanted to get my get my hands dirty and there was a need Uh, we i was at Dongguk university uh, which is in korea uh, south uh, south korea and uh, chunnan as the city. And we had the practical problem of needing to replace one of those traditional workbooks that comes with any language course you've ever taken, right? Where there's a million fill in the blanks and matching questions and we could do better. And we said, we can do better than this. Let's try. And what came out of that was a video game to replace that textbook or that, uh, the workbook. Okay. And so for a while I was very, very in the, uh, in the space of language and learning, and eventually wound up at Pennsylvania State when I decided I wanted to pursue a PhD and got into sustainability. And the games we're working on now, it's been wonderful because I've gotten to have like a finger in every pie, not every pie, but my role at, uh, so I'm co chair of the IGDA climate SIG now, and uh, I'm working with Arsh Rockefeller and their games for climate change initiative uh, and the UN and their green game jam. And so all these wonderful opportunities, uh, but I, because I'm sort of spread out in a bunch of opportunities, I don't get to do a lot of like, I'm banking a game now. It's more yeah. consulting other people's games. Uh, but since then, you know, we've got the really wonderful opportunity to work it with studios like Ubisoft and Microsoft or Xbox games that are really doing large reach games. And as you said, commercial games, right? Yeah. Thinking about how they can be intentional at the studio level about uh, the messaging they have around climate and sustainability and environment and therefore empowering the player and empowering educators to more actively engage with that messaging. And at this point, Epic games, who they do a Fortnite, right? Mm. Sort of a, one of the the heavy hitters, they're doing amazing things in that space and really, really working to not just in climate spaces, but in education in general, really working to make a toolkit, not just something that comes off the shelf and the teacher has to start from scratch with how they use it. Sorry, I kind of went on a tangent there. No, but- no,
0: it's OK. I want to dig in, though, a little bit on this concept. So I, I love this idea of the narrative, right? And your storytelling and, and a game can tell a story. So how do you, or maybe you have an example of how do you weave into that story? You talked about, right? The, like the mystery, right? You're reading a mystery novel, right? And you're constantly kind of on that edge, reevaluating who done it, kind of thing, right? So if you're doing a narrative game and you want to weave into it, Um, a call to action on climate. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? What's an example of that?
1: So in my perspective, I I try to think of narrative and mechanics, right? So narrative and mechanics or any any sort of design element that the game has to intrinsically involve and integrate any concept it's trying to teach, right? That's the step one is what I tell anyone is. It cannot be... Chocolate covered broccoli. I think I think it was Kurt Squire who said who, who initially started pitching it as as uh, the sort of chocolate covered broccoli metaphor for learning games or edu edutainment games. But I I think when we do talk about how to intrinsically integrate narrative and climate messaging, I I think the first place to start is we have to think about remove the game from the equation completely. And that's any, any educational context. It's like, stop thinking about the medium, pull yourself back to like the, the theory alert, the pedagogy, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in climate, when we talk about motivating people to take the next step in their journey, we talk about attitudes and we talk about perceived self efficacy and we talk about knowledge, right? Uh, because those are sort of your three pillars of empowerment towards climate action and the first step is which one of these things should my narrative address because you aim small and miss small right you can't you can't right. fix everything with one intervention uh, and, and i think it's the attempt to do so that can lead to to trouble and so we talk about let's choose one and i always for some reason i gravitate towards attitudes when i when i want to interact with narratives because in my mind narratives Present so many ways to introduce elements that can make us think about our attitudes towards something. Mm.
2: Uh,
1: narratives can introduce conflicting goals and make us re-examine how those goals impact each other. And for example, in climate, one of the games that I like to point to, because I, I consider it one of the first really, really impactful climate games, super energy Ap- apocalypse was this, Sort of tower defense game and in the daytime you had to build up all of your energy reserves because in the night times you were swarmed by zombies and so you had to constantly think about both the mechanics of but also this story of i've got conflicting situations here i need to quickly produce energy and so all of these quick production energy like nuclear or coal are really valuable but i also need to be sustainable because I'll run out of those resources. And so the narrative becomes this way to examine the narrative that we actually live. Right. Of,
0: and conservation as well, I'm sure. Right. You got to yeah. be really careful how you use the resources. Right.
1: in the game. Exactly. And so it, it, the, the narrative that we, we place into the game offers us the opportunity to examine the, the narrative that we're actually living like any good novel does. Right. It kind of gives you yeah. a perspective on your own, your own story.
0: Yeah. No, that's a great example too, because it is integral, right? It's not, you say, uh, the chocolate covered broccoli that you kind of threw in there. It's a real part, a key component of the the story. No, that is a great example. So when you go out, you kind of alluded to this. So I'm going to create a learning game as opposed to uh, just a, a game for entertainment. Right. Is there a fundamental difference in kind of the way you go into that process? If you know that the outcome in this case is not necessarily mass market commercial, it's specifically for an education purpose. How much does the design process, your approach differ?
1: Yeah. I think when I, I I'll be honest, I don't think it differs as much as people would expect. I ask myself different questions, <laughs> but. I think the questions still strategically serve the same purpose. And I'll give an example is an entertainment game. The first question you're asking is, who's my audience and what experience do I want them to have? Right. That's my and that could be anything. Right. The, who's my audience could be incredibly narrow. I'm making a game for people who only like this kind of game and they're attached to this sort of sport. Like I am making a FIFA game. Right. They're invested. Or it could be very large. And the experience could be anything from I want them to be terrified, glued to their computer for four hours straight for something like Five Nights at Freddy's. To I want them to sit on the couch with their friends for 30 minutes at a time and play a short little game and talk about it later. Yeah. Um, and I think the game for education asked ourselves the same questions. But. The target experience is just worded different, right? It's like, who's my audience and what transformation do I want them to experience?
2: Mm.
1: And, you know, a game for learning or, or transformative game, Sabrina sold it but from the transformational framework, I, God, I, there's no way I'm going to remember all of them, uh, but she lists. A series of transformational things I want them to transform their life experience, their world perspective, their knowledge, their attitude towards something their et cetera, et cetera. And. We start there, and I think that that reflects the rest of the processes that they go down parallel paths and they're very similar. It's just we have to always be thinking more about the transformational experience than the entertainment experience. What and about one, go ahead
0: sorry. Um, what about the concern generally speaking in education, we're always concerned with assessment. Yeah. So how do you deal with that in the design? Because what you don't want to do because I hate this right and you get these games, it's really just a quiz. Right? Mm-hmm. The whole game is just asking you questions, and you answer correctly, and you know, woo yay! And Good point, you know, right? Good point to you, so, right, right. So, how do you, because your educators want that, right? You, you're trying to do this for educators to use with their students. They want assessment. How do you incorporate assessment without making it feel like assessment?
1: So, I'll I'll give you two answers. The first, I think, will answer your question, and the second, I'm going to get a little bit. <laughs> not combative but I might challenge your statement. <laughs> so to answer the question now I'll I'll, t- I'll look back to Del Rey, the the game we made at Donkook University was that we had a hard requirement this thing must assess and it must assess the same things that a workbook would assess vocabulary grammar structure stuff that the really the only way to do that is to ask a direct question essentially Mm -hmm. or you know employ artificial intelligence in a way that was way out of scope for our project and and so we had that challenge of we have to have these quizzes in there period how do we make it not just a very expensive digital quiz because that would not satisfy the needs at all and the takeaway that what we ended up going with was Let's work the quiz into conversations. So we said, let's make it a role-playing game. And what we really tried to lean on was the quizzes and the assessments were not multiple choice. Rather, it was, please go do this thing. And if they didn't know what to do, then they weren't reading it correctly, then they weren't, or if they performed it incorrectly. And some of that really did come down to multiple choice and conversations. But the idea was... They had a mission, they had a quest, they had a, an experience and the appropriate use of English or the accurate use of English was critical to accomplishing that because you had to converse with people. And if I said, go buy milk and you came home with orange juice, and that's a silly example, but
2: yeah.
1: th- then we could say, okay, that's a failed assessment. You, you did the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, And so to some extent, when you have to work an assessment, when you have to, the best advice I can give and the ability to do this and the scope of this is obviously limited by bandwidth and budget, right? Yeah. Unless that assessment is integrated into the gameplay, unless it feels like something that would already be happening, people are going to get that chocolate covered broccoli feeling. and. Students and game players are smart, and when they catch you and cheating them it's say, like, this isn't a game. Yeah, I know what you're about. I, I feel like they, they disengage much more than they would have just with a, a paper quiz, because at least then they know what they're getting into.
0: Yeah, I want to layer into this conversation a little bit. Um We talked actually just before we started uh, the recording here, the book called uh, What Video Games Have to Teach Us About... Learning and Literacy by James Paul G. Mm -hmm. And he talks a lot about this. Uh, He was a linguist, right? And so he talks a lot about language within the proper context. So you're talking about, you know, you're in Korea. So presumably this is like Korean kids learning English, I'm guessing is what this game was based on. But you've got some, some real kind of cultural challenges there as well right? You've got to hit kids with choices of words that also make sense to them in their context. So how do you deal with that within this process, right? So this, um, I mean, it's all part of the design, but you also have to really understand where your your um, player, your learner is coming from. What do they already know? What's going to make sense to them in terms of use of language and um and the story itself, right? It's got to be a story they can relate to. How do you do that?
1: I think I'm going to go back to my narrative at the very <laughs> beginning. And yeah. that's that's where we tried to found this was we, yes, you're you're spot on. we We tried to start with thinking about what would make sense to these learners as a context for English. and also, what makes sense to us as a functional long-term goal for these learners and to us, the starting context. So this is at a university. These are older students, right? They're in their 18, 18 to 24 is college age in Korea. So these are adults.
0: Yeah. You're really not going to trick them with a silly. uh, No, no, no. They're,
1: they're pretty keen (laughs) at that age. And a lot, And uh, all the the male students, by the time they were in my level, of course, they were they'd already done two years in the military. So they're they're very used to being tricked at that point. (laughs) (laughs) They'd seen seen a whole lot of this is going to be fun conversations.
0: Yeah. A little skeptical, were they?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So so we tried to start with a natural context. And and we said the natural context is the university because to them, to these students, their whole interaction with English to that point had been classroom for most of them, right? It was non-functional English, it was classroom English. But our goal was these students need to be at a point where they can use this language on a functional conversational level because most of them are studying because they or many of them are studying because they want to be able to functionally use the language and they can't all afford to go abroad and study. Right. And so the idea was we're going to start with they're on our campus, in this little world they're on our campus, so we built a digital version of our campus, a very cheesy sort of top-down JRPG version of our campus and by the time they were, they started there and interacted with the teachers, very cartoonized the whole thing took on like an anime level of silliness and it started with me with an eye patch, uh, using magic on, anyway we'll move on <laughs> So a cartoonized version of our world that we lived in that they were familiar with English and then moved them eventually to being on a sort of study abroad in a cartoonized version of a small town in middle America uh, with the idea that now that you've used the language in the context that you're familiar with, and now we're going to challenge you to use it to do things that you maybe don't even understand the cultural concepts behind here or behind this request and a lot of that was driven by research done by the u.s military in the creation of the game tactical iraqi which if you're not familiar with was essentially a training tool for u.s military officers during conflicts in the middle east which was meant to not only train them in the language so that they could communicate on the ground but also train them in cultural concepts and norms so that they could communicate on the ground in a way that was understood and respectful and that they could understand the social cues that were given to them uh, so that they could operate on that level as well. And so we tried to integrate those concepts of you're going to use this language in a way that is not familiar to you as well.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's exactly what my expectation would be. I'm using Duolingo at the moment to try and learn some Mandarin, and and yes, that one is a quiz. There's no real storyline or narrative yeah. or you know character development or whatever. It, it's pretty yeah. much a quiz.
1: I, yeah, I've, I haven't used it, but I've had several people tell me it's very helpful. And people who speak languages very well and are just sort of trying to keep the the knowledge. uh, Yeah.
0: Well, one of the things it does well, and and this is kind of this next generation of all of these things, is it does leverage AI to detect where you're hesitant or your confidence level in certain words or phrases isn't as high. And so it kind of grills you on those, you know, reinforced learning there.
1: No rest for the weary, eh?
0: (laughs) Well, no, it's, uh, but it's good. It's really adapting to you and the way you're learning. And, you know, and and in this case, I'm trying to learn Chinese and you have to speak into the thing too, which means, you know, you've got to get those tones right. And uh, it's quite interesting the way the AI works because if you say it pretty clearly, boom, it just comes right back and says, got it. But if you don't and it has trouble with like one, character or one word you say in the middle of a sentence, um, it just pauses. And you can tell it's like the algorithm's going out there and it's going, all right, I heard this sound and it wasn't what I was expecting, but was it close enough that the the whole sentence would still make sense? And, and sometimes after 10 or 15 seconds, it comes back and says, yeah, you're okay. <laughs> Go on. Um, or it comes back and goes, no, that wasn't quite what I was listening for. You know, try cool. again. So that is quite intelligent in that regard. Anyway, I do think that there is an opportunity in all of these learning games now to start incorporating some of these AI techniques in there that can allow us to adapt a little bit to the learner and guide them a little bit more. You talked about your game that you like, that you play just for fun, that has no tutorial just go, fail, fail. you just got to keep trying and probing and figuring out how to get there and how to do things that you need to do in the game. And I love the concept of games for learning that are also designed that way, but with AI in the picture, that's adapting to the individual, right. And kind yeah. of you know, giving you hints where you need hints or offering help. You. Yeah.
1: Sorry. I didn't mean to talk over it. No, no, uh, go ahead. The- we, I think there's been some experimentation, and I, if memory serves, the language that people were using at the time, in sort of late 2010s or mid 2010s, was intelligent tutoring systems. <laughs> and if anyone's really interested in the, the concept of AI and how they're using it in these, I think intelligent tutoring systems is your—that's your Googleable term. Yeah. Uh, because that. I've seen those in in a few games that are sort of mid 2010s experimenting with how AI is going to guide that. And I think that's one of those technologies that in all across the board, we're not there yet, but we're getting there faster than I think anyone's expected.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, there's all kinds of development on outside of games on AI tutors. Yeah. So just waiting for the day when we can see them incorporated, right? So we've got an AI avatar that's watching you play the game and jumping in, and nudging you along and helping you um, very individually, kind of guiding your experience, so your experience is unique. And I think this is another interesting component. And and in fact, uh, John Paul G. talks about this in his book as well, and this idea of kind of multiple paths, that you learn a lot more from a game that gives you options. And in your case, we're talking about the climate action stuff, right? You really want, right? You want to get somebody to that attitude. You want to influence them, right? Efficacy. You want them to have a sense of control, right? You've got to give them some control, some autonomy in the game to be able to make choices that then affect the outcome, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's also, it's a very kind of personal experience. So the more we can adapt to the individual. There, the more options we can give them, the more ways they can explore, the more ways they can discover something on their own. What are your thoughts I, on that? Have you seen that done well?
1: I agree completely, and I think I'd I'd expand on your explanation there by including that I think that those options, failure is a critical part of that, and I think some and fail, failure and experimentation and seeing the world and the game change in the way that Sasha Barab, Barab? I I never know. Uh, he wrote about transactive learning and how transformational play can be influenced by seeing the way the in-game world changes. And Kurt Squire expanded on that by saying that the ability to see how the in-game world reacts to us when we take on a new identity, because we have like the safe space, in which we can experiment with a new identity or experiment with a new way of doing things is this way that narratives can really allow people to take multiple paths that they maybe wouldn't feel safe taking. And in climate, one of the things we like to think about is who are our users who maybe don't feel comfortable talking about pro-environmental action in their cultural group or don't feel motivated to or don't feel that that's the supported standpoint and therefore have never experimented with that identity or those actions or that knowledge and so allowing them the like a place in which they can do that no one's going to tar and feather you for saying i believe in climate change but people live lives with uh, among cultures that have belief systems right some of those are very explicit cultures some of those are very implicit cultures it could just be like your work friends have this attitude and allowing people the multiple branches as you said options to try out different ideas is how we provide them a place we're not demanding you have to play this game as a climate activist period No one, no one ever changes their attitude by being told to change their attitude. And in fact, as a father of a three-year-old, I can tell you as a (laughs) fact that you
0: will get the opposite result when you demand something. Oh, believe it gets worse from there. Yeah. 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 I I have no doubt. In terms of that. Yes.
1: (laughs) But if if we provide people the space and that's all we can really do as educators. And I'm going to kind of circle back to something that, that we, you said earlier uh, about assessment is that in my mind assessment is of it is, is in at least in climate and the kind of work I do assessment is not at the core of what we do in my mind the the final assessment is the person out in the world re-examining their role in the environment after they played this game how do we assess that I don't really know yet because and we're working with the UN and we're working with Ah, Carnegie Mellon and Unity to try to figure out how to assess that. Yeah. But I don't I don't think any any research scientist will look at you and say, oh yeah, longitudinal measurements of behavior change over a lifetime, that's going to be an easy one to solve. <laughs> uh, especially like, that's it's just not a, a an easy, easy nut to crack in any situation.
0: Yeah. But, so let's talk one of the components of this that I also think is a very interesting and challenging, certainly, in terms of game design and, and stuff that I've been working on, and I told you I'm kind of alluded to, I've got an idea for a game in my head. One of the things I'm really wrestling with, though, is the social component of that, mm-hmm. right? Because, again, and particularly we talk about climate change and stuff, rarely is that something that one individual is going to go do something on their own of great influence. Yeah, I think the greatest hope is that they find a group and they get active with a group that's doing something, but that requires some social interaction as well. So how do we do that in these games to say, this isn't just, I mean, I was talking about that individualized experience, but how do we also layer into these games that social component that says, your interactions with other people in the game and then outside of the game are critical to the outcome here.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a big one. Right. And I think, so let me quick step back to theory (laughs) Uh, for at least climate. And this is something that I, this is more like core behavior psychology, that one of the biggest advantages of having a social group associated with a learning principle is that you have social support for learning. Uh, you've got the whole affinity space model, like learning near people who are a little bit better than you, and teaching people who are maybe not as good as you, yep. and you know, there's near peer support. And then also you get to empower people to feel like they are age- gentle, Agentive? Agental, right? <laughs> they have agency in their world because they're not alone. Mm-hmm. How we achieve that is contextual to individual games in some ways. But when we want to include social spaces, I think when we want to include the social space in games, I think the first question that a designer or even someone who's using an off the shelf game has to ask themselves is, is the social space in the game or is the social space around the game? Or is the social space disconnected from the game? Like you said, you want them to go out, get involved in a group. And when we work with the UN Green Game Jam, one of the questions we ask those developers is the same thing is, do you want your social space around your climate message to be part of the game? Is the thing you're doing connected to multiplayer sort of PVP or PVE collaborative things that they're doing in the game? Is the climate message part of the actual mechanics and their, socializing with people in the game or is it a community event and a lot of organizations especially the larger ones who have a lot of clout on social media will organize a big community event we're gonna all the players of this game we're gonna donate money to this cause or we're gonna all go out on a trash cleanup today and when you've got five million active players of a game it's pretty easy to make a big impact like that
0: yeah so one of the other things that not that John Paul G's got all the answers, but I just reread his book. So it's fresh in my mind, (laughs) right? One of the things he talks about there, he refers to them as affinity groups. And again, going back to the kind of linguistic thing of this, right? So he talks about in each of these spaces, these domains, this context, there's a certain common use of of language, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's comfort now in I've, been playing this game and I've learned this new set of vocabulary. I've learned this new way to communicate, but I now know that there are other people out there who are also using the same language. Now they've played the same game they um They have the same interest now as me and the same vocabulary, the same way to communicate. I can say this thing to you that my brother wouldn't understand because he doesn't play the game. And so that gives us a bond. And so he he talks about really trying to kind of double down and embrace that as a game designer and your audience and, and kind of roll them into that. You want to give them that affinity group. You want to give them that connection to other people. Uh, and you do that whether it's forums or... Mm -hmm. say really encouraging community around the game or a multiplayer game where they're you know they're talking to each other right and they begin to kind of make friends and they have groups who are online at the same time and 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 attach and interact Um, but you create that affinity group but then you got to leverage that right (laughs) you're trying to move people to action now i've got a group of people who are talking to each other how do we plant that seed in there? So somebody steps up as kind of the leader in the affinity group, not the mm-hmm. boss, but a leader who kind of says, Hey, there's a bunch of us who are all in, in, in Hong Kong. Let's get together and go clean some beaches or, you know, yeah. plant some trees, do something that's constructive. Um, and we'll enjoy being with each other. Cause we all understand the same thing. Cause we've been playing the same game. Does that make yeah. sense?
1: It does. It does. And I think, you know, something that is also probably a good message for the for educators, right, who have to rely on off-the-shelf games. If you're if you're trying to integrate uh, gaming into your curriculum, is that when you're talking about social aspects, it's not as hard as people think to sort of like put a game on a game by adding, okay, here's an external. It's not part of the game that we pulled off the shelf. It's not part of that, but we're going to integrate that into our social group and i think one of the ways i've seen this in the past that was very effective is a group was playing sim city or some other something like sim city city management game and the social aspect on top of that was that each of the members of the team for each their several teams in the class took on a role in the city like in the city council they were mayor or yeah, Secretary of Transportation or Secretary of, of like Utilities. And so in order to make decisions, they didn't just one player did it. It was the group. It was easy for them to, not easy, but it was a way to create a social element on top of the game mm-hmm. that didn't require the d- teacher to go back and redesign the, the game itself.
0: Right. No, that's clever. I like that. We need more clever ways to leverage these things. Instead of they having do. to create them all ourselves, there's actually a lot of really, really good games out there. Um, and if you get a chance, actually, one of my episodes, actually very first guy that I interviewed for this podcast, Simon Engerer, and uh, he's got a company and they use COTS, commercial off-the-shelf games, for teaching writing in schools. Hmm. So they use these games with great narrative and they get the kids to write about the games. So they write papers and then they talk about, again, the use of language and they can go through the narrative and the way dialogue is written. And, you know, why did they use this phrasing? What does this mean? You know, are they hinting at something in a relationship without saying it? Why do they do that? You know, they really use the games to talk about storytelling and and writing. It's It's brilliant. He does a beautiful job with it. Yeah. You might want to check that episode out. All right. Well, one of the other things—I don't know if this has really come up yet in our conversation—but multiple routes. We, I talked a little bit about you know giving options, but when you you try to do this right and you say, "Oh, okay, you can go this way or you can go that way," and I've given you control and you can decide, right? Or maybe it's just open world—you could go explore. You can't level up until you achieve certain things or skills or encounter these things, discover them on your own or whatever. But how much does this complicate the design? When you're trying to get people along a certain path, but you're allowing freedom to, it's not linear, right? You can can just go at it how you want.
1: Well, you know, I think if you're making a role-playing game, that would complicate the design massively. But it really comes down to the type of game you're making. In a lot of games, you would think about game theory, right? What is a game? It is a challenge, and then... A set of rules that allows you to overcome that challenge, like the means to overcome that. And then the or a goal and the set of rules that uh, allow you to uh, that prevent you from achieving that goal. And then the means to achieve that goal that you have at your hands. Right. And in a lot of games, the goal is pretty vague. Build a town or even in a shooting game. Right. In Call of Duty. The goal is get from A to B. Right. That's the goal. Is walk from A to B. There will be things in your Don't way. Don't
0: die in the process, right? Don't die in the process. Yeah, exactly.
1: And I think that in a lot of games, as long as there's not like incredibly branching narrative, player the player always has a choice. Any good game, the player has a choice. Anytime you're railroading someone to any extent, you're removing that choice. And so good games incorporate choice. And I think the, the level of complication is more a factor of what kind of game you want to make to begin with and ask yourself and again i i work with larger studios who have like the time to throw around a lot of times right but it really comes down to what are you trying to accomplish and can you accomplish c- accomplish it without doing this and if you can't if you ca- if the conflict complexity prevents you from accomplishing your goal right you have to ask yourself if you're using the right method to achieve the goal. Okay.
0: By the way, yeah. I, I mentioned ugly more, yeah, I worked at EA for six years. So oh, cool. So I have worked in a, in a large game studio. Yes. Well, trying to get to action again. The whole focus of your talk that I listened to, right, was really around you know climate action, trying to get people from I'm um, in the game to now I go and do something. So what other examples have you got? Where you've really been able to do this and you feel like, yeah, this game, you know, draws people in and, and gets them motivated to go do.
1: Motivated to go do. For climate gaming specifically, I think some of our biggest potential development in the future is going to be XR for climate gaming. And I'll sort of caveat that. Like XR, AR, and MR are gonna be our big futures for climate gaming and the reason there is that one of the most important takeaways should always feel like action right and action is going to be relevant to space what you can do to to help the environment is very different from what i can do for a hundred different reasons space Mm -hmm. where you are what you have at your disposal etc right and so recently there have been more and more climate games that are leveraging mixed reality to achieve the goal of action, true action, measurable action. I'm thinking right now of uh, Climate O2, which was by DiDio, uh, who's a researcher, and said he had this terrible traffic problem, and they funded a project at the university to reduce traffic. And the solution was, well, we'll create a game, very simple gamification. Game is in the way that Duolingo is a game, right? We're going to, we're going to pointify action and we're going to give people points for walking instead of taking the bus or driving. And we're going to use GPS on their phone to track how fast they're moving to determine whether they're walking or taking their bike rather than taking motorized transit. And then those points get spent at local businesses that are really only viable on foot. And so the funding funded these points and then drove traffic to these local businesses that were in like foot markets, and and increased decreased traffic. And you know the takeaway was like a ten percent reduction in motorized traffic in the area and a massive yeah well and they they had a very small area they were very targeted all right because it was it was the university that they were targeting saying this is our experiment i don't know this is 2018 i think so they might have gone further since then a massive reduction and then this huge increase in visits to these local businesses that were then able to continue to fund the game because now they were people come in to spend a dollar in points and then end up spending $10 in cash. Now they could help fund the continuation of this game. Yeah. And so I know that's that's sort of a reductive idea of what a game is, but I think it's a very clear example of how action can come from providing pathways to alter our our behavior that seem viable. Yeah. Right? Providing an, a place to experiment that actually works for the, the day.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, hey, we're just past an hour. So anything you want to talk about, something we haven't covered, a message, what do you want to share with the world?
1: What do I want to share with the world? How about a theoretical share and then a bit of a plug, if that's okay? Sure. You do plugs at the end? like Sure. (laughs) Plug away. Yeah. I would say that what I want to share with the world is that the greatest challenge of designing a game for learning specifically climate, but in, uh, in any game for learning, is keeping always in mind that a game can be more than just a different way to pointify something like that. And I know I just referenced the pointification, yep. but they took it deeper, right? They, how can we encourage a culture? How can we encourage a show social system that that becomes self-reciprocating? Yeah. And the greatest challenge is to always keep in mind, how can I introduce conflicting goals? How can I encourage someone to see another perspective by providing them with an empathetic experience. and climate and in all learning, we always and I this is the message I give every every talk I touch on this on some level is you need to think about am I conveying knowledge? am I empowering the player by increasing their per- perception of their own self-efficacy or am I attempting to to provide them with a means to re-examine their attitude? and always ask yourself that and you know the if you're trying to do that with a bunch of quizzes as you said you're probably not going to achieve your goal and you're really not leveraging your tools
0: cool Um, all right what's your plug
1: okay my plug my plug i really want to plug the igda climate sig so the international game developers association has a climate sig that if you just google igda climate Sig, if anyone is into game design and climate action we are really uh, it's a growing organization that has produced some wonderful things we did the the game design playbook 2 years ago mm. which or the environmental game design playbook which is an 80 page document on how to do design for climate this just a couple weeks ago we released the action wiki which is a sort of interactive what game design elements connect to what outcomes and what theoretical principles of learning and Ubisoft, uh, we we just published that in collaboration with Ubisoft. And it's just, it's an organization that's very wonderful and warming and really connects to the, your action can be in your game, but sometimes it's it's awesome to have the action out of the game to feel like you're in a space where you're being supported to pursue your major goals.
0: No, that's awesome. And I am a member of the IGDA. We can put a link in the the show notes. So I'd say you know, send me any links you, anything you think are good resources for our audience who are presumably educators, ed tech companies, uh, learning game companies, resources they might be able to leverage to make better games for learning.
1: Absolutely, I will do that. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you, Clayton. This has been fun. I hope uh, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation.
1: Always, always. Yes. There's not a single graduate student graduate who gets away or graduate school graduate who gets away from there without loving to talk about one very specific thing.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad I was able to give you the opportunity to talk about that specific thing for you. Please go save the planet, Clayton. You know, find a way oh. to get everybody motivated. Let's let's go uh, fix this thing.
1: <laughs> We're trying. Yes. My baby, by by, baby steps. Right.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, sir. Thank
1: you so much for having me, Eric. This was a blast. I really appreciate
0: it. I've been studying learning science and how the theories can be applied to serious games for some time. It's been a privilege to have Clayton Whittle on the show talking about both the theory and more practically about how we move people to action on climate change through compelling and engaging games. We learned that there's a whole community of folks working on climate action gains and brilliant minds like Clayton's helping apply learning science and social psychology to change attitudes and inspire action. If you care about the planet, get involved. There's a lot of work to do and we all need to feel the urgency to take action to reverse climate change. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and share. We have more awesome guests lined up and amazing stories of innovation in education that you don't want to miss. Please reach out if you have comments or suggestions. I'm Eric Byron. Thanks for listening, and thanks to all those education innovators out there. You are making a difference. I'm going to leave you with some music from Andrew Byrd. The song is called Manifest. There's a link in the show notes if you want to listen to the whole song, which is about caring for our planet. Happy Holidays!
2: I'm starting to question my manifest destiny my claim to this frontier I'm coming to the brink of a great disaster and just has to be near The earth spins faster, whistles right past you, whispers death in your ear Don't pretend you can't hear Don't pretend you can't